As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to The Good, The Dad and The Ugly, the fatherhood podcast. I'm Seth and you dad. And on each episode, you'll hear me and my good pal Jamie. Hello. Who's also a new dad as we chat with our special guest each month about everything that comes with modern day fatherhood. Along the way, you'll also get the latest highs and lows and thrills and spills as Jamie and I foray further into these unfamiliar, joyful and often choppy waters. Choppy waters. Choppy waters. Choppy waters. Choppy waters. Hello and welcome to episode eight of The Good, The Dad and The Ugly. I'm Seth and I'm here with Jamie. Hello. Hi, Jay. Hey. How you doing? All right. Yeah, not bad. Good. Good. I'm obviously going to ask you uh, plenty of questions about uh, your new role as a dad. Yeah. But we'll introduce our, our guest for today first. I think, yeah, good idea. If you remember, in the last episode, it was just me and Jay in the studio for a, a special episode on the birth of uh, Jamie and Nat's daughter Matilda mm. but this time you'll be happy to know we are back to the usual setup which is the two of us plus a special guest and we've got someone super special for you again today who I'm tremendously excited to introduce who, who, who is your daddy and what does he do Jamie on a scale of one to ten how excited are you yeah it's a solid ten solid ten yeah I'm gonna go eleven yeah I don't like it when people do that because that's okay. like people going, I'll give it 110%. That's not uh, actually possible. That's true. But I mean, you know. If it's good enough for Spinal the... Tap, then I guess, yeah, it's good yeah, enough for you. you. All right, exactly. Cool. All right, I'm going to go ahead and introduce him now. It's a bit of a tall order. I have to say I was intimidated last time when we had um, the multi-talented Matt Willis on. But this month's guest is, I'm going to say, a modern day renaissance man. <laughs> In addition to being a rapper and a songwriter, he is a screenwriter an actor across various genres, TV drama, TV comedy, film, etc. He's also a stand-up comic, and something that's especially relevant for the pod, he's an author of uh, a successful children's book, and of course he's a dad, and we just learned that he's a, a copywriter for adverts as well, so um, <laughs> a, a pretty impressive all-round guy. He is the one and only Ben Bailey-Smith, a.k.a. Doc Brown. I just, when you said children's book writer, I just realized I totally forgot to, I meant to bring you guys copies. We've got copies with us, don't worry. Oh, have you? Yeah. For real? Oh, bless you. Bless you. I was going to give you freebies. Okay, that's great. Because, you know, there's no fucking money in children's picture books. Oh, really? Unless unless you're Julia Donaldson, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess so. No, there's nothing. There's not a penny. I got my first check for I Am Bear, um, I don't know, probably three months after the hardback dropped last year. So probably around this time last year. And um, to this day, I'm still in the minus of my, <laughs> of my advance. Like I've got about 13, 14 grand until I get into like the positive. It's a bit wow. like this podcast. So that, <laughs> that will surprise a lot of people, I think. Yeah, that is. That's Because I, I would have thought that it's quite a lucrative... I. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really like not a niche book. It's really not. It only is if you've got a lot going on around the book. If you look at Julia Donaldson, she's number one. She's got about twenty-five books mm. out, of varying quality, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also she's got stage plays. She's got toys, big budget cartoon movie versions. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like I talk to my sister about it all the time. Mm. My sister Zadie Smith. I'm sure everybody knows. Like she's a s successful novelist in a lot yeah. of people's eyes, but. 
still like what do you do around a book like that book could sell reasonably well yeah. right but if you've got a great book that you tell me about a great book that you've read i'm gonna ask you to lend me it do you know what i mean I'm, i might not <laughs> yes. go out and buy it so you've got to have other but ideas you think and with, with children's books you think it, because like people are always people so want new of, they want yeah, the new want exactly mm. so but i'm like that with that normal books as well i don't like lending my books to anyone I just get I get really possessive over my books because I should. like them on my shelf. You should because they'll never come back. Yeah, that's the thing. You won't remember no who you lent it out to. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of like you know your book, do you want to tell us a bit about for people who maybe don't know about the book and yeah, what it sure. is and like it's called Iron Bear. Yes, and it, it came out this year. Well, the hardback came out first, and then there's a year before the paperback. This is another Whoa. thing that's just. I mean, this is based on some ancient thing in publishing yeah. where they used to bring out a hardback for schools and libraries because mm. it was hard wearing. Yeah. And then they'd just, they'd wait and then they'd put out this paperback for the shops. And for some reason we still do that, but it's nuts because the hardback is like eleven ninety nine. You yeah. know, who wants to spend 12 pounds on a children's picture book? And then the paperback's nearly half that price, but you gotta wait a year for it to come out. So I don't understand any of that. But anyway, I Am Bear came out February 2016 in hardback. And it's basically like a short picture book for toddlers about a bear who's a prick. That's really <laughs> all it is. You know, me, me and Sav accused my illustrator. We came into the game in a very strange way because authors and illustrators don't come together for picture books. Authors sign deals and publishers place illustrators with an author, established illustrators, right. okay. which makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if Kanye made a trainer made a sneaker for our American listeners. Um, <laughs> who would give a fuck? But yeah. if he does it with Adidas, then people are like, oh, it's the new Kanye Adidas thing. Because it's Adidas. Yeah, yeah, Similarly, if I wrote a picture book and tried to draw the pictures myself, <laughs> what do you know what I mean? It would be shit, no matter how good the text was. And people would ignore it. Whereas if I had Quentin Blake and you walked into Waterstones and saw Quentin Blake... You might buy a David Williams book if that's your thing. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that actually when I went into the shop the other day. And I what has he got? A Quentin Blake. He, like, he's, he's, he's had some Blake illustrations. I think he's it's Tony Ross now who does his stuff. But Tony Ross is also a fucking legend. Mm. Tony Ross was working when we were babies. Do you know what I mean? So he's had two legends illustrating for him, and and that is literally it's like the Nike swoosh. Yeah, it's like yeah. the Adidas trifoil you know on your product so it makes total sense and me and sav would like i mean i was thinking about writing a children's book because i just thought i've read so much shit for my children when they're yeah. little and i know i could do as good as some of these do you know what I mean not saying like oh i'm rolled dull yeah i just thought some of these are horse shit <laughs> there's no two ways about it this is rubbish do you want to name and shame any particular that you think has you know it's hard to remember because my kids are 11 and 8 now right. and and like i am bear is for two to five year olds really even maybe one year olds you could read it to yeah and um, but it's for very little children i just really remember from that era like there was stuff that i was just like this is bollocks yeah. you know, this is actually an affront to young children because there's just nothing there and then you go oh, you wrap up some rubbish little moral at the end or oh now it's time to go to bed what you haven't earned anything. You haven't earned anything from me, like, you know? Or, I mean, the big, big ones are the ones that are just glitter. There's just glitter all over them and pink. Do you know what I mean? Oh, look, you got a daughter. Here you go, you fucking idiot. It's some glitter and some it's pink. It's frozen, the book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I really resented that, and Sav did too. Did you, um, like, because obviously the, the um, for people who don't know, the, the book is kind of written in sort of quite a lyrical way. Yeah, a bit like the and in the first person, it's from Bear's perspective. And... But it, was that always the intention to sort of draw on your kind of like rap? Yeah, rap but that rap. wasn't my idea. That was Sav's. Right. I, I wanted to, like, if I could show you, I wish I brought some of them with me. If I could show you some of my other children's book ideas. They're so worthy. And they're, <laughs> like, there was one about a, a little mixed race girl who nobody liked because her hair was too curly. You know, <laughs> it's just like, oh, fuck off, man. Yeah. So there's uh, no moral to Iron Bear, basically, is what you're No, saying. that was all Sav's idea. Sav was like, let's just have him get away with it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you can't really do that. And he was like, no, but look at it. You keep it so sparse that it becomes a conversation about morals between the reader and the child. Mm. And I was like, that's fucking genius. Mm. And that's what happens. Yeah. People tweet me every day, parents, going, ah, oh, it's so great because 
my my kid always says, you know, ah, oh, it wasn't squirrel that stole the the donuts. It was bear. Like bear should get punished, you know. And and kids are coming up with these things on their own, without being told. And in the end, bear had to go to jail. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or like the the books that I really hate, where it's just like, and. After that conversation, Susie was never selfish ever again for the rest of her life. It's like, what lesson is that for kids? Kids go into the playground the next day and someone's a selfish prick to them again. You know, someone gets away with murder in the playground every day. Teachers don't want to deal with it. So it was really, like I say, it mainly came from Sav, just that concept of, well, hold on, you know, bad people exist. People get away with naughty things, yeah. but it's up to you how you live your life. You can watch someone doing a bad thing and they get away with it. It doesn't mean that you go, oh, well, he got away with it, so I'm just going to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you've been raised right, you look at him and go, it's quite funny that he got away with it. I personally <laughs> wouldn't do that. And that's how the book's been received. And that, to me, is just unbelievable. Like, I'm so proud of that. But I don't, yeah, like I said, I don't make a penny out of it. In the early stages, mm. I was going back to my mum's house and going into the attic and pulling out books that I re- vaguely remembered yeah. from when I was a child and testing them on my kids and seeing if they still had weight. And the great books are timeless. Which, they which really are. I mean, in terms of like absolute minimalism for a uh, very young age, Rosie's walk is fucking unreal. There's not even any words. It's just a chicken walking home. No words, just pictures. And it's pure slapstick comedy. It's incredible. And it's about it's about Rosie's walk. It's about 40 years old. Oh, okay. And it is timeless. I mean, if you've got toddlers, they'll love Rosie's walk, they'll laugh. And you can tell your own story. There's no words. Mm. I mean, it's it's special. Um, there's another book called Hug which is a lot newer, probably 10 years old, maybe. Uh, I think that's Jez Albra. Right. I might be wrong. So someone will be listening going, no, it's not fucking Jez Albra. <laughs> um, but it's just a little monkey who loses his mum. And it's the usual journey. Have you yeah. seen my mum? Have you seen my mum? The pattern of children's books, uh, picture books. Does he find but his mum? He finds his mum. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but there's only one word in that, which is hug. Okay. So everywhere he goes, he just goes, hug, question mark. And, and the animals are like, we're not the guys. We'll give you a hug, but we're not, we're not the guys you want the hug from, you know. It's beautiful, but it's just one word, hug. And the story's called Hug. Here's a nerdy dad story. I was in a national trust uh, <laughs> ruined castle. I can't remember where it was, actually. We were just stopping off somewhere on a, on a bit of a... We like to do like big, long family drives. And you know how your kids, they love the shop at the end. They love the fucking shop. Yeah. So you have to go through the shop and then, oh, daddy, can I have this? Can I have no, you're going to fucking lo- you're gonna lose it before you even get home. Do you know what I mean? But you've got to give, give them like a fiver or whatever or a couple of quid and, and see what I'm walking through this shop and there's a table covered in one picture book just stacked up, displayed out, fanned out across the table. Yeah. And I picked it up and I leafed through it and I actually started crying. Now, this will be strange to listeners who don't know me, but to anybody who's got children, they'll know like tears are never that far away. Like (laughs) before I had kids that I remembered the last time I cried, like two times. One was when uh, like at my dad's funeral and the other one was like when I was like fucking 12 and I like slipped on a curb, gashed my knee quite badly and it yeah. hurt. So I cried. Other than that, I couldn't remember <laughs> when I cried. And like since I had kids, I cry at all types of shit. <laughs> You're just uber emotional. So the book was this book called Apple Pigs, which the National Trust had obviously taken over the um, rights to. Yeah. And uh, I just, I'd not seen it since... You know, probably 1981 or something. Yeah, yeah. And I just looked at the cover and I was like, I fucking know this. But I was just on my own with it. It was just like, <laughs> I was in the zone. I know I know this. And I opened it. 
every page I remembered, it was just this girl, she planted some apple seeds from an apple and the apple tree was just barren every year. And it just really depressed her as a little kid. And she hit like the end of childhood, sort of like 11, 12. And the apple tree just suddenly grows. But the apples do not stop coming. And she just does everything with the apples, including turning them into little apple pigs. Like she molds apple pigs out of them, which is where the title comes from. But there's so many apples that they feed the whole neighborhood and people come around. She's got a million ideas for these apples and she's just overwhelmed with happiness. And I leafed through it and I cried like a <laughs> bitch in a National Trust shop. Yeah. If anyone walked in at that moment, I went, isn't that Doc Brown? I would have been <laughs> fucked. Like that would have been the end it's of the, my career quite right there. Though, right, the National Trust. Yeah, like that's a safe, that's a safe haven for get, me. Yeah. I don't get spotted. <laughs> like, like I'm running out of safe havens. Second. I've got two Instagrams. I've got like my public one. Yeah. I don't put my kids on there. Yeah. And I've got my private one which I do put my kids on. Yeah. And I glassed and breathed the shit out of that with my kid. I, look, I, hey, I'm the coolest dad on here. All right. Look at my kids. They're watching Chic. Where are your kids? <laughs> is that the first, have you taken to a festival before? Is that the, your first? No, no. I always took them to Latitude mm. when they were younger. Um, How old are we talking when they were young? Uh, my youngest, she was a, n nine months, I think. When Ooh, we, okay. The okay. first time she right. went to Latitudes. It's pretty young. Yeah. It was a bull lake, yeah. Oh. I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, like, okay. I, and I never, t I, I purposely never took him to Glastonbury. I took him to the smaller ones. Like I say, started with Latitude, worked my way up a bit. How big? But is I, Will, I didn't Will bring him to Glastonbury thing? until last year was the first time. They've only been to two Glastonburys, and I've okay. been since '95. Yeah, yeah. Glastonbury's a different ball game, though. I think it's more fun when they're older. Like, mm. you know, like my kids have talked about Glastonbury since 2016. Glastonbury. Do you know what I'm saying? talked about 2017 Glastonbury and wanting to go and you know like they see a whole different Glastonbury and I, I have to say I saw a whole different Glastonbury in 2016 because I was sober a lot more of the time yeah and I was like there's actually a beautiful side to this yeah, festival yeah, yeah. that I've yeah. always been too high to notice yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's loads of like kids stuff so I, I, like, the kids feels out yeah. of this world I mean in 2016 it was a washout right yeah right, and yeah. I was there for three days and it was hard work. Just moving around was hard work. Yeah. Watching shows was not enjoyable. Like stomping around in really deep mud, horrible. But the kids field was the nicest ground right. in the whole festival. So, you know, I spent a shitload of time in there. Mm. Have yeah. you performed at Glastonbury before? I, I always perform there. That's why, that's why I go. I wouldn't, oh, right. I wouldn't pay to get in. Oh, right. <laughs> like for all my family of four, that's just going to cost you a grand. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What were you performing? Were you doing? Uh, always, always comedy. Yeah, they they don't. Uh, I'm not trusted to do serious music there. People don't really trust in me to do serious music, which is frustrating because I was a serious musician for well, a lot longer than I've been a comic. But there we go. I can't just, control that. You've just got a new album that well in yeah. like earlier this year. Yeah. Stemmer. Mm. Tom kind of elaborated a little bit on what stemmer actually means, but what is it? Do you? I mean. Yeah, it was a word I stumbled across in a book that I just really loved. Like I like it's my thing like reading books and finding words i immediately look them up it's the only thing i liked about the kindle i'm back to book books now but what i loved about the kindle was the way you could just press the word yeah and it defined it yeah yeah. i, I think that's that. an amazing little feature so i think i think i was reading um the biography of london by peter Ackroyd, which is just an absolute beast like 1100 pages yeah Oof. um and I think that's where I read the word. It was it was something historical anyway, and the word popped up as a kind of old school Latin word um, that basically means like the genealogy of a family tree. Oh right, yeah. Um, and it also has a secondary meaning, which a lot of words do, which is uh, how transcript connects, how words and phrases within a script connect to each other. Mm. And I thought, oh fuck, that's perfect because I've been like I was about halfway through the album when I found the name. And I'd been writing songs about sins of the father, about parenthood, about, you know, nature or nurture, about whether you can blame your behavior on people in your family before you or whether it's just you. Yeah. But then also, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing script, I'm writing verse. So I was just like, it, it couldn't be a more perfect name. 
Welcome to the real, you can feel it in an eavesdrop. Trying to give my children something to believe in. Trying to bring a little sunshine to Neesden, Wilston, Wallace Hill, Kilburn. I'm on it still. And the roads I left behind, you'll be on my will. Incredibly, you're still the source of my energy. Bodies turn to dust, but the flow will never rest in peace. I got my daughters looking up right next to me. And this is them at the beginning and the end of me. So family seems to be something that's kind of you keep kind of coming back to in pretty much it's huge huge for me yeah do, right it's huge yeah it's huge and um parenthood like being a father was something i always wanted to do as well from when i was an actual child which i think is unusual for boys yeah someone tweeted something amazing a couple of weeks ago that fucking blew me away some girl tweeted a, a young girl as well she tweeted um that uh the reason that girls mature quicker than boys is because they are forced to be responsible for their actions and nurture from the start. Mm. I mean, she did put it in way better and more aggressive terms <laughs> than that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was in a nutshell, it was brilliant, but it really made me think, fuck, that's so true. You know, most boys just kick around, do dumb shit and everyone goes, oh, boys will be boys, you know? Mm. Whereas a lot of people say, no, boys will be held fucking responsible for their actions. I was raised by women and I just always, I'm not trying to call myself like some maternal guy, but I just made a decision early on. I wanted to have kids. So deep down, I always knew that if I met the right girl, I would just hope that she would felt the same. And I was very fortunate in that respect. She felt exactly the same. She was, she was desperate to have kids. So we just went for it, even though we were in the modern age standards young. Do you know what I mean? Which was how, how old were like you? Like mid-20s, you know. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In the old days, that would have been considered old, I think. Mm. Do you know what yeah. I mean? But in, in 2017, that's quite young. <laughs> and so, you've had, so you have two girls. Yeah. I mean, I heard you say, I, I wrote it down actually. I thought it was like, you said kids teach a man how to love. Yes, like, do they how, do. Like, explain. I, I, I thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of levels to it. First off, I would not deny any of my own misogyny or my own suspect gender politics or sexism that I think are, are rife amongst just the male population, mm. but only so far as you choose to challenge them. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you choose to challenge them, then you can be whatever you want to be to whoever you want to be it's just a question of how much you can be fucking bothered and most men can't be bothered mm. whereas if you sire can you say sire yeah. if you sire girls <laughs> you're forced to think about it no matter how what kind of dickhead you are you're forced to think about it yeah. and the real dickheads go oh, I don't well, I don't want to think about it and they just run away which is why you have so many you know single parent situations I was never going to do that. So I had to face my own demons and um, work out what it was in me that sort of secretly, privately felt that, well, I'm a man, so I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, I had to question that. And um, you, question, you have to question a lot of things. You have to question your pornography use. You have to question like... Um, I guess your language, your use of your words. language, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the stuff you, it's, it's like when you get your first gay friend mm. and you're like, oh man, like I grew up saying if something was rubbish, I'd say it was gay. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's the first time you go, oh fuck. Like actually that's so, that's <laughs> yeah. so dark to yeah. say that. Do you know what I'm saying? And you know, if these things can force an undereducated mind like myself to learn and uh, realign myself to a point where I'm totally okay with it, then anyone can do it. And it's inexcusable mm. to not do it. Mm. So now I spot the subtleties of sexism in a way that I've always spotted the subtleties of racism. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying I'm on the same level as women because I could never be. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. All I know is my radar's up for that shit. So you think then you're like probably quite a different person because you've had two girls. I wouldn't say I'm a different person. I'm the same prick I always was, <laughs> but I'm definitely more rounded. Right, yeah. I'm more rounded. I'm more emotional. I'm more in touch with my feminine side because I, I started realizing that every human being does have both sides. Yeah. It's just chance yeah. that you got 
the the chromosomes you got it's just pure chance you know before those chromosomes hit you could have been either and and like every single person's got some sexual fluidity some gender fluidity on an emotional level yeah. i i think yeah. i think that's one thing i've yeah. discovered over time i'm not saying i definitely definitely want to suck cocks i'm not saying that <laughs> I'm, for the record I, yeah i'm good but i'm also like i am saying there's a part of me that's like fuck i recognize yeah these elements of me that as a teenage boy i would have gone no no i don't care <laughs> what what are you talking about do you know what I mean you fight it because you think that's the manly well, we're thing kind of to brought, do we're brought up to, like by society to kind of feel yeah like that we have to conform to a certain stereotype of course and and the the concept of being manly itself is like it's bullshit do you know what i'm saying like the manly thing to do when uh, I was 18, 19 and people were making their girlfriends pregnant, the manly thing to do in their eyes was to just fuck them off and go off and be a manly man somewhere else. Right, yeah. And maybe get another girl pregnant or at least just keep fucking different girls. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? That was the manly thing to do. Whereas now you would recognise the manly thing to do is be a fucking man and be a father to your kids. Yeah. You know? And... I'm not going to say like I'm the perfect father. I'm far from it. But I think I'm an interesting father. Would you say you, you, you think your kids think you're cool? Because not a lot of people do. We've spoken to quite a lot of people and they don't. No, no, they, they don't think I'm cool. What they think is the trappings of my work can lead to cool shit for them. <laughs> right. There's a crucial difference. Yeah. So for example, my 11 year old, when I talk to her, when her friends are around, <laughs> It's like how we used to react when like the community police officer came up to us when we was in a stood around like having a cipher when we were 16. I am from the nerd squad. Hey kids, I'm the new community police officer. Listen, I know a lot of the other police are on your back. Uh, my name's Martin. I'm here. You know, I, I used to listen. I used to listen to a bit of rap. I'm not. Come on. I like a bit of rap as well, as much as the next man, yeah? Um, so, you know, just saying I'm here. And we'd all be just looking at our fucking feet, you know? It's kind of like that with, with my eldest. So we got a cool relationship, but when she's with her girlfriends, nah, man. Like, I think her girlfriends kind of think I'm a goof and they quite like, like me goofing around. But yeah, I can feel the beginnings. Like, in a year and a half two years my eldest would be a teenager and I, I can feel the beginnings of it happening now it, where it's kind of a bit oh i'm not getting involved by the way in the secondary school process this is an interesting conversation yeah. point actually because my eldest is going to secondary school in september right and i'm not getting involved i was deeply involved in helping her decide what school she's going to but in the early stages, when she starts, I'm not going to be around at all. Why is that? I'll be here physically for mm. her when she comes home from school. Because I noticed something fucked up. I changed her school about three years ago. And at that time, and still today, I was and am the creator and former star of one of the most successful CBBC shows right. of all time. Yep. Um the four o'clock club. Mm. And I can't fuck around. I can't be near schools, even secondary schools, because kids yeah, grew up on my kids. shit. And <laughs> one thing we noticed that was quite dark when, when she changed primary schools a couple of years ago, she came to me and she said, I don't know if I like this girl or not. Cause I said, ah, oh, this girl seems really friendly. You could be friends with her. And she said, I don't know if I like her or not. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, all she does is ask me about you. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, that's fucked up. Yeah. And it's because she'd seen me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wanted to be friends with her because. because of me. And my daughter's savvy enough to bat that off and that they are not friends. She's yeah. got her own group of friends who are real friends now and they're not impressed by me. Like I say, they think I'm a goof. But I don't want to risk that again. Yeah, 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 yeah. In year seven, mm. it's a bad starting point, that's I think, funny for her. Because I, I, when I was a kid, and I think back to shows that i watched i don't think i had like that 
Like I would be interested in the show, but it wouldn't go beyond. It's a different age though, isn't it? Mm, I yeah. didn't care either. I didn't care about the world beyond the show. Yeah. But it is yeah, a different that's age, weird, isn't, isn't it? it? I'm, yeah, I'm celebrity at... kind of like fascination. Like I follow Derek Griffiths on Twitter now. Yeah. But I don't know if I would have cared back then. Yeah. I just loved the show as it was in that moment. You know. Yeah, it's a weird one. Like I, I mean. I guess that there are some people who I imagine would probably quite like that kind of adoration and that kind of like they're being recognized. But then I guess when you're talking about like year sevens, it's kind of a little bit different. I can't be near schools. I can't be near schools. <laughs> I can't be near schools at 3.30. Yeah, we should yeah. probably talk about, you know, four I can't be there. Like, that, be so there. That, was, that was massively successful. You're now, you, you've, I think we were saying, we were talking before, you've now passed that on. Uh, that's right. your brother I, yeah my brother is writing all the songs for it mm -hmm. um, but most of the team of writers of script writers that I was writing with in series one and two are still on it so there's a sort of continuous vibe to it so to speak and the cast keeps changing which is fine because it's set in a school but yeah uh, for the past what were we on series seven mm. the past two series my brother's been been writing all the all the songs and it's it, it's beautiful to me because the show was about two brothers yeah it starts it's quite nice that there's still a family connection behind the scenes as well as uh in the essence of the show i um, mean it really it really is a huge it's massive isn't it it's gigantic yeah. i mean like it's just been commissioned for an eighth series and there's not that many scripted series outside of soap operas mm. on british television mm. that have run for that long and for anyone who hasn't, I'm sure the majority of people who are listening to this will be aware of it through their kids. Like, what, what's, what's the vibe? What's, what is it? It's, the initial idea was based on my work before I got into this entertainment world. Um, I was a, a youth worker and I worked in a series of youth clubs. I ended up running my own after school club. And it was based on those experiences because I was always very immature. So I still am. And... Uh, <laughs> It always just made me laugh that I'd meet kids all the time that were way wilier than me. Mm. And um, the most profound experiences came in the, in the last club that I ran, which was for kids who were the children of asylum seekers or victims of wars, conflicts in other parts of, of the world. Uh, some of which were unaccompanied minors, you know, like kids who had no parents who were settling in this one particular area not far from where I grew up. And I helped develop a, um, an after-school facility for those kids. And working with those kids and seeing them grow up is fascinating because they were immediately more mature than me. They'd been fuck. They'd seen fucking war. They'd seen people yeah. killed and shit. Do you know what I mean? And they weren't all damaged like you think. Oh yeah, they're probably really damaged. No, kids are super resilient and they bounce back. So these are kids who came with not a word of English within two weeks they've got like slang <laughs> do you know what I mean they've got they've got English asides <laughs> like they're on some next level because kids are like that they're yeah. like sponges they're amazing the ability so it always just made me laugh that I'd be having like these man-to-mans with like yeah. seven-year-old Sudanese boys and uh, that's kind of where the idea came from I wanted to make a show sort of based on that Homer Bart dynamic where you've got an infantile man and a really sharp-witted child. And it was actually Paul Rose, a really experienced children's writer who'd written on um, like uh, Wolf Blood and Tracy Beaker and shit like that, um, who came up with the idea of making them brothers. My yeah. idea initially was just that they were a teacher and people who rubbed each other up the wrong way. Yeah. You know, but he came up with the idea of them being brothers and that gave it its heart, really. Mm. And it was a fascinating process because... I was involved from the start, obviously, because it was my idea. I pitched it to CBBC. I'd managed the whole thing. I'd, I'd moved up to Manchester to live where uh, CBBC had, had moved to at the time. Right. So I was involved hands-on with the casting. And initially, we were looking for a boy who looked like me. And they had to come in and do some script reading with me and also perform a rap. We had some funny moments, actually. There was one... There's this one fat kid who came in and he was like, I want to perform my own rep. And I was like, oh, amazing, great. 
And he was like, hey, yo, I got bitches in the back of the whip <laughs> sucking my dick. And I was like, dude, you're 10 years old. Like, what the hell? Uh, but there was another, there was, this other kid walked in and he looked nothing like me. He was dark skinned, glasses, precocious. He was, and he, he, he grew up in Peckham, but he lived in Sale now, like outside of Manchester. And uh, grammar school kid. And he did the dialogue perfectly. He had so much character. Yeah. And then he said, um, I want to do my own rap as well. And I was like, fucking hell, here we go again. But it was amazing. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, oh my days. Like, it has to be him. Even though he looks nothing like me. Yeah. And and to this day, the number one question I get from younger kids is, is he really your brother? Do you know what I mean? Oh, no and it's... Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like it's like me and you being brothers. Like no one would have thought it on the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, something in the beauty and the wonder and the intelligence of his performance meant that he seemed like my brother, mm. and I loved him like a brother. Okay, that's at the end of part one. We'll be right back with the next part. You've talked before about how sort of close you are with your sister, Zadie. Yeah. I, I guess what the, you know, with having two daughters, like how do they get on with each other? Do you kind of try and really make sure that they get on Do you with the value yeah. of sort of like a good sibling relationship? Yeah, I think the sibling relationship is absolutely key um, on so many levels. I mean, the first thing for me and my sister was our colour. So like if you uh, are a little kid, you might remember... Um, a day in school where you, you're at the lunch table and you all get your plastic cups and they're all different colours. And one of you says, anyone who's got a red cup's coming to my birthday, you know, uh, or, or, or some shit like that. You sort of, you bunch together in what is familiar, mm. right? It's nothing to do with racism. It's just familiarity, cosiness and warmth. If you're in an all white family or an all black family or an all Indian family, or an all Chinese family, every, everybody looks the same you're on the same team from the start in a mixed race household is slightly different because we had a white father that we didn't look anything like and we had a black mother that we didn't look anything like so at a very very early age as a mixed race kid you're like not even who am i like you're like what am i like what am i mm. like because you go to other kids houses and they all look like their parents and you're like what i don't get it so your sibling becomes immediately important in that area and then the other thing is you know there's only 18 months between me and Zadie so we grew up kind of like twins you know we had the double buggy and shit so you know we were very very close as youngsters and then by the time we reached sort of like seven or eight or she reached seven or eight I should say it became quite clear that she had abnormal brain power <laughs> because our reading was at a par and then everything changed yeah so she was reading like judy bloom and then she'd give me the judy blooms and i'd take way longer to get through like super fudge you know <laughs> take the whole summer like reading this book like about a child's summer i'm reading it in fucking real time do you know what i mean <laughs> and she's just flying through them and then going up and up and up to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then when she read Little Women in like two days, that's when everybody was like, whoa, okay, this is weird now. Yeah. <laughs> and then she started trying to write. Wow. At what? And, at eight? Yeah. That year she came second in like a national competition. She saw an advert from Smarties saying uh, they'd linked up with this character from children's TV called Dr. Smarty Pants. Okay. Who was actually funnily enough children's book fans michael rosen um it was like a character he played on tv in the 80s and um yeah dr smarty pants was looking for the smartest writer for the national smarties writing competition and she wrote a story you know and these are the days when that shit was big do you know, yeah. what I mean? you know like you hear these terrible things about blue peter getting no viewers and stuff mm. back in the day you have to understand these things were huge panini stickers send off competitions uh get a fucking spoon from Frosties. <laughs> this shit was huge yeah. because there wasn't that much entertainment. Kids have got too much entertainment now. Yeah. So she entered the competition and she came second and she was in the national papers and whatnot. Shit. 
and that was it. That's where it started. And from there, she just kept winning writing competitions, man. Like when she was like 14 or 15, she won a competition to be the editor of uh, one issue of Just 17. Wow. She was like a huge yeah. magazine. I remember that magazine. Huge magazine. Do you know what I'm saying? She did that, nailed it. Then like first year of university, she was published, already published in like a, a, a book of short stories. She had a short story in there. And then by her graduate year, she'd written one chapter of White Teeth and got a deal with Penguin at Random yeah. House. End of story. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like she it makes was, me feel like that small. Yeah. She was a she was a prodigy <laughs> and I knew that from the start. And as her intelligence grew and I realized she was like a kind of superhero, I think we sort of distanced a little bit, but we always had that kind of Luke and Leia kind of connection. <laughs> did, did you, you feel like, like, whatever, like, I mean, Leia, yeah. hear me. <laughs> I, do you know what I mean? She knows what I'm thinking and feeling. That's the, like some twin shit. Yeah. Do, do you like feel, or did you feel like an immense amount of like pressure then to kind of live up to that? No, not at all. Because we were in a working class household with parents who were not academics and even finished school. Do you know what I mean? There was never any pressure on us to do anything right. of any, you know, academic or, or global value. Do you know what I mean? It was always just morals. Just don't be a dick to people. Right. Do you know what I mean? That was it. And when we showed interest in something, they were, my parents were very encouraging. Mm. And uh, all my parenting skills come, come from that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to force anything on, on my kids. I want them to come to me with a passion and I'll yeah. go, I'm going to facilitate that as yeah. much as I can. Yeah. And that's, that's what our parents did with no connections, no old money, no nothing. Mm. My sister, in fact, at one point became the breadwinner of the entire family mm. at 21. I mean, it's fucking insane. Yeah. So do your daughter, are they, are they pretty close? Do you kind of like... With you, each other? Yeah. Yeah, massively. Obviously they fight, you know, hammer and tongs, but when they're out of the house you just see them. They just fight for each other mm. because it's the wider world and it's scary. You know, in, mm. in the house, it's like, it's all power struggles. Yeah, yeah. But outside of the house, it's just like, it's you and me and this fucking crazy thing. And it's a scary world. Yeah. I mean, they're growing up in a time that very much reminds me of when I was their age, where we had a fucking relentlessly evil, racist, classist Tory government. And, hardcore terrorism worse than what we're getting in the uk now people forget that i'm not belittling the terrorist attacks in manchester and all of that it's fucking horrific but just try and cast your mind back if you're old enough to when i was a little kid in the early 80s the ira shit was nuts man yeah. like, and i was living in kilburn where a lot of them were hiding out and shit you know you, you were scared because it was in the news every day and, you know, my kids, they're terrified of terrorism. Mm. Absolutely terrified. It keeps them up at night. Okay. How do you deal with that? Like, what do you, what's your kind of... Because, I mean, that's something it's I've It's really, about. really tough. And it, it, it brings me to tears quite regularly because I can't control it. I can't control terrorism. I can't control the, this level of... I don't, I'm not, I don't want to say evil because I hate it when people say evil. Terrorists are normal people with mental problems. Mm. That's what you never hear about. You, all you hear is like, he's evil. How did he get radicalized? Mm. How, mate, he's a fucking nutcase. <laughs> if he thinks it's okay to kill someone for what he believes in. Mate, if I thought that was okay, there would be... So, anytime someone said Tribal Quest, they're, they're not all that. They'd be dead. They would be dead. Do you know what I'm saying? They'd be dead. You have to be mentally ill to kill someone for something that you believe in. Yeah. Like it's bonkers. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's a hard thing to explain to little kids. Mm. So, you know, the monster rhetoric, the evil rhetoric that you get in the press, I guess that's a bit simpler, but I don't like to be simple with my kids. I like to be quite real with them. And um, I give them the harsh reality quite a lot. And to be fair, my wife's on board with that as well. And, neither of us had the most straightforward or simplest of upbringings um my wife's way way tougher than mine you know so we're very much like these are the realities of life 
but there will always be helpers. There will always be people, good people that you can turn to that will look after you and there will always be love and there will always be happiness in the world. And the fear and the, the horror, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. It's always like some temporary shit that someone's trying to throw out there to make a statement. Mm. And it's petty. Yeah. Whereas love and happiness, togetherness, that shit lasts forever. No, I just wanted to ask a question about storytelling and the the role it has for kids. Because like you describe yourself as you know being a storyteller. That's mm. kind of one of the main things you do. And obviously, you know, your sister is very mm. much a storyteller, and your brother too. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you see storytelling like in terms of childhood? Well, I guess as a precursor to this answer, I should also say I have a half brother and a half sister too, who are both artists as well my other sister teaches art uh, and paints herself and my other brother is a musician so we do sometimes think like what's the deal yeah because none of our parents are artistic none of our parents are professional storytellers none of our parents are connected to entertainment or anything like that so what's the deal how did it work All I can think is that when I look back on my childhood, my parents just pulled out every stop, every stop. Like they fucking did not drop the ball at any moment. Even when their marriage was in tatters, even when there was no money, even when there was outside stress, uh, pressures pushing down on them, they just did not drop the ball with parenting. They were on it. At all times. I learned so much from them, you know. And it makes me laugh now when I speak to my friends because I'm the first out of all my friends to have kids. And, you know, my friends are having babies now. And it just makes me laugh for the ones that haven't who are like, yeah. And I'm like, mate, you've been with your girl for ages. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, we're just looking for the... We just want to... I need to get the right job and need to get this house and... You know, we wanted to be in this area and we need to be by this school. And like, <laughs> mate, none of that shit's gonna ever fucking happen. If I thought those things, I would never have had children. I just I wouldn't have even begun. Mm. And I think similarly, even though maybe that world of things of like, I don't know, money pressures and stuff was maybe a little more straightforward than the years before I was born. I think my parents had similar pressures and they just fucking went for it and they just thought we've got something to give. And what they learned very quickly was, oh my God, we're up against it. Yeah. Mm. We're poor. We're not just black. We're black and white, which, you know, <laughs> in America and in South Africa at certain times, being mixed race was at one notch above in the caste system. That didn't happen over here in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. The probably the most hated, the most reviled, the most like just the the horriblest thing was like a mixed family because it, the racial tensions were so strong. You had the rise of the far right, thanks to some politics that are very reminiscent of what we're experiencing right now. But you also had, as a result of that, the rise of the Black Power movement. Yeah, you know, and uh, the Back to Africa shit. You know. I think my parents were parenting under intense pressure. Yeah. Plus, don't forget, we were living in Kilburn on a council estate in an area that was largely Irish that uh, police would run through all the time arresting and beating up innocent Irish dudes because they considered them to be IRA. And all our friends were Irish. So we were experiencing so much of this shit, so much negativity, and I didn't feel any of it. I never felt poor. I never felt discriminated against. I never felt under pressure. I never felt a right-wing influence. I never felt a prejudice, destructive, austerity-laden government. I never felt any of that shit. Mm. I was just bouncing around (laughs) Queen's Park going, oh, look at that flower. Look at that butterfly. (laughs) And my mum would dig up into the ground until she found clay and we'd fucking put it, mold it and put it in the oven and make like welly boots and ashtrays. 
you know what I'm saying? So and they would both read amazing stories to us uh, at nighttime and cuddle us and tickle us and sing to us. They were amazing people against all odds. And, and on top of that, you know, my father was born in 1925. He was on the beaches at Normandy in 1944. Uh, he killed men by the time he was 19, renounced violence, gave away all his medals and his uniform in the immediate aftermath of the war, fought for peace, met a black woman 30 years his junior in the early 70s, fell in love with her. She's fresh off the boat from Jamaica. And they become the oddest couple ever and then have to force to fight immediate discrimination, yeah. not just from the rest of the world, the rest of the UK, but also from within their both their own families. So, you know, they could have been victims, but they ruled with love. They thought that was the stronger thing. And when I think of the madness that was around us as little children that I never felt ever, and then understanding it as we got older, I always think, well, what the fuck else would we have been but artists? Mm. You know? We were always going to be storytellers. Yeah. We were born to take our parents' struggle and move it into a way more middle-class, comfy, cozy zone. Now, our biggest concern for myself and my sister, my, my younger brother doesn't have kids yet, but my sister's got two kids. Our biggest concern is how do we make our kids not pricks? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because... We give them the world. We give them everything. We take them around the world. We, you know, we fly from country to country. You know, my only holiday was Cornwall. That was my holiday. Do you know what I'm saying? Cornwall. Mm. Where you just go from some racism in Kilburn to even more racism in Cornwall. <laughs> Great. My eldest daughter's passport, we were gutted. She had to change it recently, you know, to renew it. Her, her old passport's fucking out of this world. She's been everywhere. And, uh, you know, how do you make your kids Keep not grounded. spoiled? How yeah. do you, you know, because you want to give them everything. Of course you do. I want to give them everything and I want to make them feel safe in the face of darkness in the same way that my parents did. Mm. But I think I've got more resources than my parents had to do that. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty deep. In terms of... You know, storytelling that, whether it be writing humorous lines for your raps or coming up with a joke, where do you start with that? Where does that, does that come from personal experiences or does that, do you just think of something quite funny and then like back? Yeah, uh, I, I, back I, start, I, I start 100% with the truth and then I work my way from there mm. and then I, I'll break it down and find the funny within it. So everything changed in my career in stand up when I, chose to do that before that I was always like what's the funny thing to say and then I realized actually this is bullshit I don't want to do this every night I want to talk about the shit that's interesting to me and then I was thinking but yeah but the shit that's interesting to me is not funny mm. and I thought it doesn't have to be not funny find the funny within it and that changed everything and now I won't even do stand-up if I don't feel like I'm saying something that's important to me yeah People are like, do the tea song. Do the fuck uh, the tea song. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't even drink tea. Yeah. That's, 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 the, that's the thing that, like, if, if I could explain behind the curtain of stand-up, I don't even drink tea. That's and so that, illusions. Yeah. that should let you know exactly what that kind of stand-up is all about. Yeah. It's just like, here's a thing that everybody finds funny or has an opinion on. I'll poo-poo it or I'll have a strong opinion about it. Yeah. That is stand-up 101. It's basic and it's bullshit. I'm not saying the tea song's not funny. It is. But who gives a fuck? Like, who cares? <laughs> I don't even drink tea. I drink beer. <laughs> well, I came up with a joke the other day and it's the first time it's ever, I was just sitting there an advert came on and then I went quiet for about 15 minutes trying to work this joke around and I've tried it out on some mates and none of them find it funny but I think it's quite genius. And okay. you actually helped, Seth, you helped out on it, like towards the end of it. Oh yeah, yeah. Break yeah. it down. Right, okay, so, okay. I've got to remember, because it's quite, it's quite long-winded. What's the most confused piece of salad during Brexit? The most confused piece of salad? During Brexit. Okay, the setup's not good. No, I know, that's the problem. So <laughs> clunky. Can, yeah. But I'm th I feel like the punchline's good. Mm. 
Romaine leaves. That's good. Yeah. See, that's a good punchline. Yeah. yeah, it's good. But the setup doesn't the setup. work at all. That's the thing. That's why it took me like 15, 20 minutes to work out. Because I saw an advert for Romaine lettuce and I thought, oh, Romaine, that's a bit like. And then Romaine. And then I said Romaine leaf. And then you came in with, it should be Romaine leaves. And then we had the joke, but I, I haven't worked out. Won't you, you make that. like a tree <laughs> yeah. and get out of here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it's good. You right. just need a comic, a true comic to. To, well, this is why well, you're trying to say that James got a true comic. No, no. <laughs> a true comic wouldn't have had that setup. Right, the setup's yeah. awful. So what but the punchline's great. So you'll probably do There's it a, a lot quicker. Than there. It just you just need to spend some time on it. Yeah, I don't think I can be bothered. I don't. Well, in that case, thing. I might steal it. <laughs> yeah, you can have it. You can definitely have it. Like Jay was, it was actually in kind of behind the scenes life of this podcast not that long ago mm. that we recorded the last bit yeah. of the episode. Maybe I shouldn't have spoiled the illusion, but what has actually been going on since? Do you know what? People say parenting's hard. So far, mm-mm. it's been breezy. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously, but I, yeah, like she's sleeping, like, yeah. like, like. I know. See, I'm getting. Yeah, I can, it just doesn't I'm, last, bro. No, it's know, like yeah. phases. You know, you know when because uh, I remember these phases in the first year yeah. of my 11 year old, but then after about when she was about two and a half, she really started to struggle to get to sleep. Because when they become aware of the world, sure. that's yeah. when it becomes yeah. difficult to get them to bed. Mm. And if they're overly attached to you, it is important. Like, where does your daughter sleep? In our bedroom. There I, you go. Yeah. Number one, this is the first horrible situation that you've got. She sleeps perfectly in the knowledge that milk and love and comfort is right there. Yeah. You take that away from her, you're going to have your first major challenge when it comes to sleep. Mm. Right? And uh, as soon as we experienced that, we struggled to get it back again. And, and it intensified as she hit two. And then the next time that she properly slept all the way through the night, went to bed at the time we wanted her to go to bed without any emotional strain or grief or terrible trying on our senses mm. was when she was about eight and a half. Okay. Fucking hell. Jesus. So you could have... Enjoy it while eight it lasts. Years. Yeah. You could have eight years of hell from now. I'm waiting for it to change. Because like, that's what I had. Yeah, okay. Right. That's the second one that's though. Small, that's sobering. The second one, she just fucking sleeps. Yeah. From 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 the day she was born to now. I mean, she didn't cry when she was born. Right. I mean okay. I just I yeah. get, I still can't get my head around that. Yeah. And she just sleeps. Mm. She loves to go to bed and she hates waking up. That's she exactly would, she would as, sleep yeah. in, until 10 if she could. Yeah. But she obviously has to go to school. But yeah, the eight, <laughs> the eight-year-old has always slept. Yeah. The 11-year-old, even now, even last night, she had trouble sleeping. Mm. But eight was the breakthrough when we were like, this has to... Like, we were going fucking insane. Yeah. We saw sleep specialists and stuff. And it was when we were like at the end of our tether and, and talking about going to see like doctors she freaked out and she was like, oh, sleep, I'll sleep, I'll sleep. And she sort of forced herself to, but she still has trouble mm. every now and again. Whereas the little one, never. Yeah. Never. See, with Matilda, we've got to the stage where, like, unfortunately, she lost, like, in the first four days, she lost like 13% of her body weight, which was a She was deal. sick. Well, she, you know, what was happening was, and it's still the case, we don't think she's, in, in terms of feeding, she's not really getting much yeah. from breastfeeding. Like she's right. doing it all. She's like latching fine. She's on there for ages, but we think she's just like a really lazy eater. How big there. are your wife's boobs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're bigger now than that. You know. That's literally nothing to do yeah, with me. <laughs> <laughs> just literally trying to sneak in. A... <laughs> um, <sighs> Makes no difference, guys. Yeah. Well, that's well. I mean, she's she's. It's tough because, like, obviously Nat's going a bit crazy because it's sort of, you know, it's not really, not really happening in that way. So we're having to use a bit of formula to kind of like top up, which right. isn't really what we want to do, and blah blah. But honestly, she sleeps, and we have to wake her up in the middle of the night at like three in the morning. Make sure then, she's still alive. Like. Well, just to kind of feed her, really, <laughs> just to kind of keep her, keep her. Going. I had this situation where I couldn't wake her, and she was like, we knew she was alive, so it's fine. <laughs> like she because she was like doing the proper, like you know, when you try and wake 
someone up and they just don't want to be woken up and they're mm. just kind of going fuck off sort of thing yeah. she was doing all of that so I stripped her down changed a nappy I googled it and it Dude. said run ice cubes up and down her back so I did that and I felt so let, bad let doing her that. sleep man I did it let her she sleep. still slept through it I'm telling you man she takes let it off to her mum let her sleep if a baby all they know is survival yeah. if she needs to eat she will wake up and scream yeah. if she's sleeping let her sleep yeah, get that's your what we're sleep doing get your rest she'll be fine yeah. she'll be absolutely fine yeah. she'll eat when she has to eat yeah. I'm feeling quite smug because loads of people are texting me, being like, "Oh, how's it going? You getting? Are you, are you sleep deprived?" People yet? always say that shit. That but John, like new dads or new mums, and I know they're asking me so that they can laugh about it and be like, hey, "Well, it's going to continue." And I'm there going, "Nah, it's all right. I'm sleeping all the way yeah. through. It's fine." It's but you like, know, sleep is the thing that is talked about most in the early years because it's the thing that affects you most intensely. But really, over time it's an irrelevance it's all about the emotions of your daughter or, mm. or, or your son that's the thing that keep, like people say oh it's cool now you got 11 year old and 8 year old you don't have to worry about sleep I still worry about sleep not because my kids are going to wake up but because I'm fucking terrified of everything mm. I'm anxious I'm anxious about their well-being I mean, I'm scared of the future mm-hmm. before I had children I didn't give a fuck about climate change climate <laughs> change kiss my ass it's gonna happen it's gonna happen to some old dudes like long after I'm dead do you know what I mean yeah 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 but now you have to worry about everything and uh, yeah I mean I sleep now like I slept when I had newborns I sleep very lightly and I wake up or I can't get to sleep mm. and that's anxiety it's the anxiety of being responsible for another person another human being you know most of our friends I'm sure like are not responsible for other human beings like there's a lot of dudes who like you know get get to a point in a relationship with a chick and they're just like ah oh, I'm just sick of like having to worry about like where <laughs> she is, do you know what I mean? Or what she wants to do. So they, they call it off. We don't have that luxury. You can't call it off with children. Yeah. It's 24 seven. The job ends when you die. Mm. That's when it ends, you know? And you pray that it's you that dies and not them. And then you've got the underlying anxiety that, that it's maybe them that dies first. Mm. And these things are deep rooted and you don't want to address them, but they're there. They're there just scratching at the back of your mind. And that's the real reason you can't sleep. The fucking bottles and the formula and the nappies. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a front for what parenthood becomes. And so it if never there's anyone ends. out there who <laughs> is thinking about having kids, um, that might Well, this been. is the thing. You've got, to have, you've got to have both sides because the other yeah. side of it, which we've touched on already, is that it makes you, and I'm talking from a man's perspective, it makes you a fucking better man. I did not have this yeah. power of words. I did not have this sense of conviction. I did not have the success in my professional life. I did not have the ability to do what I do today before I had children. I was a underpaid youth worker when my first daughter was born. I got on stage for the first time and tried to do stand-up, which has led to all these amazing things that I've managed to do since and to a, a flourishing and financially stable career I got on a stage to begin all of that at 30 years old with a toddler and a bun in the oven and no way of knowing how I was gonna pay the heating bills mm. you know what I'm saying mm. it was a different type of pressure I had to be funny I had to make it work it was a huge gamble, but having the children forced me to say to myself, there's only one outcome. Yeah, It has to work. It has to work. I'm not thinking about the other outcome. Whereas before that, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'd quite like to do this. I'd quite like to do that. But I'd also like to play FIFA for a bit longer. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. completely. So the negatives are profound and they are, overpowering at times but so are the positives it's a completely even thing like the amount of times i've looked at that front door and just thought i'm fucking moving to mexico i'm going to mexico i'm changing my name i'm gonna find one of those better cool soul motherfuckers and get a new passport i'm done and the amount of times that i thought 
I couldn't be prouder. I don't want to be anywhere other than here yeah. watching my kids being amazing. I can't wait for the day that I have two grown women come around my house for Christmas dinner telling me about their lives and the amazing things that they're doing. Mm, yeah. I can't wait for that fucking day. I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. And I'm getting closer every day. Yeah. My eldest is an unbelievable athlete. She's, uh, she runs for Victoria Park Harriers. She embarrasses boys every weekend. She's cause she's so tall. Her stride is incredible. And her, her natural ability as an athlete is unreal. I've never been good at sports, you know. I don't know where the fuck she gets it from, but she's amazing. And she wants to be in the Olympics, and I believe she can do it. And even, even, if, she, even if she doesn't do it, I know she'll be able to put her mind to something else because I've yeah. given her the right start, and her mum's given her the right start. Mm. And uh, that sense of achievement is fucking great. That's yeah. why I can walk out of an audition and then my agent's like, you didn't get it. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. I can step off a stage. She's like, oh, that went quite badly. I'm like, yeah, but mate, I got paid before I stepped on the stage, <laughs> man. I got some girls at home that love the shit out of me. I don't give a fuck if you didn't find me funny. Yeah. You know, people don't understand the lion strength that I've got from having children. Yeah. So, you know. That's great, man. The day I come home and my kids are like, you're... <laughs> you're a piece of shit. Yeah. That's when I'm fucked. That's when I got nothing. That's when you go to Mexico. Yeah. That's yeah. when I go to Mexico for <laughs> real. Thank you, everyone. We're going to wrap it up there. Thanks in particular to Ben Bailey-Smith, obviously, Doc Brown, Jamie. Um, obviously, you know, your input is always welcome. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate High that. praise. Join. Yes, yeah, kind, of, kind of good that you're sort of there, I guess. <laughs> Making up the numbers. Nice. I didn't mean it like that. But. Okay. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, tune in again next time. Yeah, and also remember to rate, review, share, subscribe, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Good Dad Ugly, all that shit. 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 Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.